Do you have somebody in your life who loves books? Somebody who not only loves books, but always wants to share what she's reading with you, thinking that you're going to love her latest selection? And inevitably, you just can't stand that book they suggested. That's us! <laughs> we both read a lot. Well, I don't even read, I listen. But we very rarely agree on what constitutes a good read. I enjoy books that build up worlds, invite magic and mystery into our lives, because science fiction rules. I listen to a variety, but it's all grounded in reality. You can keep your elves in space operas. Welcome to our podcast, You're Making Me Read What? Your hosts on this monthly podcast are myself, Jessica, and my colleague, Christine. We're librarians who get a thrill out of a great read, but usually can't stand what the other person has picked up. We've each selected some of our all-time favorite books, and each month we'll alternate between the lists with the goal of persuading the other to enjoy a read she would never have picked up on her own. Even if a book isn't entirely your style, it may have some redeeming qualities to it, right? I guess we'll see. Hmm. <laughs> well, I am very excited to welcome everyone to this month's podcast. It is one of my picks. Huzzah! I know everyone out there is very excited. We don't have to listen to chaps or chappies anymore from, from the roaring 1910s. Wait, was that the 20s? When did they roar? It doesn't matter. It was so long ago. Yeah. So long ago. Not that this book is set any more recently. Okay. They talk about aged technology in this one as well, so... I'll hmm. touch on that a little bit later. Okay. Our book this month is Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman. And I was so thrilled to force Christine to read <laughs> a Neil Gaiman book. I, I do have to preface it with first, though, this is our third podcast. Mm -hmm. We have somehow managed through no fault of our own, to pick British authors mm -hmm. for all three podcasts. Mm -hmm. So the first one was Terry Pratchett's. Mm -hmm. And then we did Mr. Woodhouse. Mm -hmm. With Great pronunciation, by the way, right there. His he should have been Wodehouse, right? Or Mister Crumple Pants. What was those funny names that we were giving people? Oh, well, you're Cordelia Crumbswaddle. That's what it was, right? That's he needed you. his own fancy name, right? And then we've got Neil Gaiman, who is also British, although he currently lives in the states. So you know, he's he's come to us a little yes. bit. So we want to share with you that our next author will most likely be American. Yes, that is true. <laughs> We'd like to, you know. Jazz it up a little bit. <laughs> but because this is our podcast about Mr. Neil Gaiman, we thought we'd tell you a little bit about him before we dive into this particular book. Um, as with some of the other ones that we've selected, um, Neil, I'm going to call him Neil. Okay. He's not here, so I'm going to call him that sure. anyways. Um, he is a fantastic author, and he's been writing for quite a long time. He was born in the 60s, and he published his first uh, short story and then very quickly subsequent book in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And he's been writing ever since then. If you look up his bibliography, it is literally longer than my arms. Like, you know, people <laughs> say like, oh, the list drops all the way to the floor. It probably does because he's written books and short stories and he's done anthologies. He's got picture books and graphic novels, series and standalone. He's, he's just a very um, long-standing author. He's got mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of great stuff out there. And he's won a lot of awards, too. So it's yes. not just me saying, like, he's great. There's magic. Go, go, go. <laughs> it's also that there's actually people who agree with me. Mm -hmm. You know, he's won uh, World Fantasy Awards, British Fantasy Awards, Bram Stoker nominee, Hugo Awards, which is like the big science fiction awards. Mm -hmm. But he's also won uh, Newbery and Carnegie Awards, which are, for librarians, kind of a really big deal for, for youth services materials. Mm -hmm. um, He's just, he's an all-around great guy. So I have a question for you. I think of him as a youth 
youth author primarily. Mm-hmm. Is that accurate for mm-hmm. you? Like, do you think of him? Where where would you categorize him, or would you not categorize him? I'm going to call him a chameleon, okay? Because he can he can hit on a lot of topics. He's done some really great picture books for younger children. One of my just favorite, favorite ones that he published a while ago now is called The Blueberry Girl. Mm -hmm. And it's a series of poems that he wrote for his friend who was having a little girl. And he buddied up with uh, an illustrator who was a friend of his. And they made this lovely book. And it reminds me very much of... um, Oh, the places you'll go by Dr. Mm-hmm. Seuss. It's something you give at graduations or births. It's it's almost enough to make you cry if you're in a teary mood. Mm-hmm. And the illustrations are beautiful, and it's just it's so sweet. It's endearing. But then he also has a picture book called the um, oh gosh, what was it called? It was called oh the dangerous alphabet, <laughs> and it's really creepy. <laughs> like it's a picture book, so you pick it up. You're like, oh, this is appropriate for a four-year-old. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe you want your child to be 10 or above and okay. not scared of monsters under the bed or things that live in canals or will eat part of your face off. It was Okay, so maybe not for every 10-year-old even. Yeah, maybe not for adults, but it's really <laughs> great. So he does he does kids' materials. He's got a lot of children-focused books. So the one that he won the Carnegie and the Newbery Award for is The Graveyard Boy. Mm-hmm. And that book, it's another one where you you read the premise and you're like, oh, it's kind of weird. And then you get into it and it's such great writing and place setting and development. I forced an adult book club to read it. <laughs> they had no choice. This was the book I handed them I and feel said, their pain. here you go. Yep. And they loved it. It's hmm. just, he's got that magic of storytelling quality. And some of them listen to it and he's got mm-hmm. a really wonderful speaking voice as well. So he's done a lot of kids' books. And he's also done graphic novels, which kind of span that bridge. The Sandman books were a good mm-hmm. example of that. So... I think he could fit in really anywhere. It's just whatever he chooses to turn his hand to. Right. Um, This book, The uh, Neverwhere, actually started off as a TV series Mm -hmm. um, in mid-90s on BBC Two. Okay. One of the many BBC channels that they had back then. And so he helped develop the teleplay for it. Mm -hmm. And then he converted it into a novel. And then he's amended the novel a couple of times because originally it was intended for British audiences. So there was a lot of place setting and... um, and acronyms that when you import it to the States, we wouldn't know what they're talking about. Right. So he had to go through and kind of update it a little bit. Right. So when you read this book, not giving too much of it away, mm-hmm. did he read for you as a young adult author or as an adult author? Well, I was I was a little bit um, perplexed by the book because I didn't look it up before I started listening. Ah. And so – and in my head, I just have him associated with um, juvie – uh, mm-hmm. juvenile fiction and maybe young adult fiction. And I know he writes for a variety of audiences, but I couldn't figure out who this audience was because um, he some of the descriptions, like I remember he put about one of the women that she smelled like sex. So I was like, hmm, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not a juvie fiction book. Yep. And then I also, my big criticism of the book is that I didn't feel like he really developed the characters very well. And so then I was like, well, I don't think this would appeal to adults because the the characters aren't very developed. Maybe it's more for kids. And so I kept going back and forth, and I could never figure out who it was for. So I did look it up afterwards and realize that it was adult fiction. Yeah. That's a really interesting perspective that I knew what I was getting into the first time I read it. Right. And I've known what it was the second and third times I've read it. And knowing that it was a teleplay Mm -hmm. that he revised to turn into a novel – 
I don't think I anticipated the the depth of character building that I would out of most of his normal books yeah. because it was always intended to have people on a screen right. playing it out. So right. I had that kind of in my head. Even though the television version wasn't like fantastic, uh-huh. you kind of get that behind it. I think this one was definitely meant to be an adult novel. Right. You right. can tell by many of the darker themes that run through it. Yeah, although he, he was – I did a little bit of research about him um, and – he said that he was turned down for a children's book, a bedtime book, because it was too scary. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he does have that kind of dark side. So I, I, it doesn't necessarily preclude. I was thinking it could be young adult. Yeah. Um, but there were just a, an, enough sort of gratuitous, odd, either sexually explicit mm-hmm. or it just didn't fit to me. Okay. So. Well, so for our listening audience, now is probably a good time to give you a little background on what is actually happening in this book. So Neverwhere is set in London, and it follows our main character, Richard Mayhew. And Richard works in, like, an accounting investment firm, and he's got a pretty placid life. He's mm-hmm. got a fiancé that he didn't really like, but she's okay. Her he's, name is Jessica. Her name is Jessica, and I will point out later in this that she gives us all a bad name. <laughs> We're not all bad. Most of us are fine. She was not very good. Um, so he's got this fiancé, Jessica, who, you know, just kind of pushes him around into doing things, and he goes to work, and he comes home, and they go to museums on the weekend, and it's all just kind of flown along. And then one night, he and Jessica are on their way to a restaurant to meet with her boss, and they stumble upon this bleeding, broken girl in the streets who happens to be a young lady named Dor. And Dor asks them for their help because she is running away from something. And Jessica says, no, she's ready to just step over that poor bleeding person. Call the emergency services and keep walking, Richard. She wasn't even ready to do that at first. She was just like, nope, don't see that. Just keep on. She literally stepped over her and was prepared to go on her way. So at that point, it's kind of a juncture point for Richard. And he says, no, he he picks up this person and he takes them home with them. And he leaves his fiance and says, I'm sorry, I have to I have to do this thing. And she says, if you do. We're, We're done. done. Oh, yeah. She's, she's so that's not, a hard stop. And he she's makes not the that nicest. decision. Right. Yes. So he gets this person to his home. And what follows is a series of um, odd happenings. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out that Door is from a whole other place. It's an alternative subset of reality. And it's not really well explained. You're, you're left to kind of build it up in your own head, which um, is London below. So the London that Richard lives in that everyone else lives in is London above. And Dor and all of her compatriots live in London below, which is made up of all the hidden places and the people that have fallen through society's cracks and um, all the connector bits. So there's a lot of imagery in tunnels and sewers and forgotten places. And throughout the course of this book, um, Richard is forgotten in his real life in London above because of his interactions with London below and has to go find Dor in this whole new place to try and get his old life back. So he goes on all these adventures and tries to help Dor find the people that murdered her family. Uh, he's tortured. He, he goes through all these trials and ordeals. And at the end, um, he has a choice to make about which one of the two places he wants to belong to. So that's a little bit about the book itself. Um, I found a lot to like in Neverwhere, which is why I, I brought it up. Sure. And some of the things I really like about it, I appreciate the use of alternative perspectives in books. So mm-hmm. with this one, it goes back and forth between half a dozen different perspectives. Mm-hmm. It goes back and forth between Richard and Dor and this really wacky character called the Marquis de Carabas, who's 
Carabas. The, oh, the, the readers Carabas. said Carabas, but, you know, again. Yes. I'm going to call him Carabas. Sure. Sure, why not? Who's this, like, jaunty fop of a man who dresses in rags and he's got a top hat. And... But he's got a really cool coat. He does have a cool coat. And he's got, there's a subsequent sto- short story about how he got his coat back because he lost his coat at one point. So, anywho, the, the story goes back and forth between all these story lines and perspectives. And I like that as a storytelling model. Mm-hmm. It's a nice way to move a storyline forward without doing a lot of cutbacks. Right. You know, sometimes you're reading a book and you've got one main character and they have all these flashbacks like, oh, here's how you get my backstory. Right. You didn't have to be there for it. I'm just giving it to you. With this one, even though there wasn't the level of character development some of the other ones, there's enough opportunities to see different perspectives that the plot moves forward and so does the place setting. Right. Yeah. Do you like alternative perspectives or do you prefer one person all the way through? I think I'm pretty open to different uh, storytelling um, methods. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm open to that. Um, with this particular one, my frustration was that I didn't feel like any of the characters was particularly compelling. Uh-huh. Richard is, in my opinion, just this hapless fool. He's sort of <laughs> wandering through life. He doesn't really stand for anything. He's not really excited about anything. Mm-hmm. Jessica was a caricature of a person who's just not very kind. She yep. she pushed him around. Um, and then even there were a bunch of other characters that I was hoping would be a little bit more um, complex. Like Hunter mm-hmm. is um, somebody who ends up... Um, betraying Mm -hmm. the party that she's with. And I thought, okay, so here's an opportunity for a little bit more complexity in a character. And it turned out that she only did that because she has the single goal of killing or fighting the beast. Yep. So there was really no other aspect to her that was interesting. Um, Dor, who's the, the main victim, and you're kind of on the crusade with her to avenge her family. Mm She was not compelling to me. I, yeah. She wasn't a really sympathetic. So I think that I struggled because it made more sense to me once I found out that it was originally a screenplay mm-hmm. because it was clear to me that that kind of development wasn't what was intentional. You know, that yeah. wasn't the focus of the book, which is what I was expecting. Interesting. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting was that I did not bring to – the story enough London knowledge. So yeah. like one of the things that tickled me, and I don't I don't begrudge an author this because you kind of have to make a stand. And he took a stand that he was going to set it in London. And so London becomes a character. And yep. I dig that. That's a great literary technique. And you kind of take a risk yep. because it's going to alienate some folks, but it's going to draw a lot of people in. And London is a big enough town city that yeah. it's going to draw a lot of people in. I haven't visited London enough to really have an understanding of the tube and which yeah. stations are accurate. So one of the things is like it was supposed to be this really weird part that there wasn't a station at the British Museum. There's and I was not. like totally lost on me. Oh. I ha- I was the idiot that he had to explain that to. <laughs> so. See, and I I love the I want to come back to Richard as a character, yes. but I want to talk about London a little bit because that's one of the things I like most about this book is his scenery painting and mm-hmm. his place setting. Um, he had a quote in there pretty early in because Richard moved from Scotland mm-hmm. down to London. And he said, London, 
was a city in which the very old and the awkwardly new jostled against each other, not uncomfortably, but without respect. Hmm. And I've I've been to London a couple of times, and so many of the little pieces that he said rang really true. Mm. And of course, you know, we're both librarians, so mm. when they were talking about, you know, is the British Museum stop on the tube line closed? Well, I pulled up my computer and I looked it up. <laughs> and it is. It's been closed since 1933. They use it for um, storing maintenance supplies. Okay. And there's a comment somewhere in there as well about um, there's a tube stop called Piccadilly Circus. Mm-hmm. And is it really a circus? Are there people there playing? Right. And there's not. It's just a little circle there. And they talk a lot about the different aspects of London, the kind of the bright, vibrant, touristy parts, Mm -hmm. really strongly juxtaposed with those kind of dark alley streets. And that's another kind of visual imagery that he's setting between London above and London below, Mm -hmm. but sideways. Right. Yeah. And he talks later on about there's a a really small character called Serpentine Mm -hmm. and all of her sisters. And Serpentine is a river below, and there are many other sister rivers that throw through there, too. The the Thames, the Tybalt, the Fleet River, all of those ones. And you probably won't care about this because I'm getting the sense that this was not your cup of tea. (laughs) But I was very jazzed because as I was doing research on this, he is writing a sequel called The Seven Sisters, which is about Serpentine and the I will totally not read that. (laughs) (laughs) So I do want to go back to character development. Yes. Because... What I appreciated about his his people development in this was that almost all of the characters are set up as foils to Richard, who himself is not aggressively moved forward, but he makes progress throughout the novel. When you first meet him, he is absolutely this hapless guy kind of bumbling around. He's got this fiance that told him a year in that they should go pick out an engagement ring. And he was like, <laughs> well, OK, whatever. And... You know, he's he just doesn't really have a lot of sense of purpose or place or what he's going to do. And then he runs across this girl in the street and he makes a choice. Mm -hmm. He makes a choice to pick her up. He makes a choice to help her. Right. And all of his actions following that show a level of personal fortitude that he grows upon. So when Dor leaves for the first time, the, the girl he picks up that's broken and bloodied, Uh, and he starts fading from the lives and memories of everyone in London above, he makes a choice to go out and find someone to help him get to London below. And when he gets to London below, he makes a choice to follow the Marquis and Dor as they go down into these tunnels. And there's a point maybe maybe halfway through the book where they're going through this ordeal process where they're trying to get a key Mm -hmm. for a purpose that we won't reveal yet. Right. And uh, he's called upon to participate in this this awful ordeal that's it's almost like a simulated it's like a mind trip where right. they were trying to convince him to commit suicide. Right. And um, he, he had enough capacity and enough personal resolution to not do that, to not fail mm-hmm. where everyone else had failed. Right. And by the end of the book, He's back in London above for a period of time. And before, at the start, he would have just let it all go. So his apartment had been given away because nobody remembered him. And he went up and he got the penthouse and all of his stuff back. Mm-hmm. And Jessica came back and wanted to, to date again. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, he wasn't interested. And at the very end, he has a choice to make. Which life do you want to belong to? Mm-hmm. And he made a personal choice. So I saw a lot of growth in him. Mm-hmm. Where I didn't in other characters because I thought they were all just, they were there to build him. Right. Yeah. 
I think I disagree in that there wasn't enough growth. I, I thought he still was, and this is this is how at the end, when I was thinking about talking about the book with you, mm-hmm. the next day after having finished it, I couldn't remember the ending. Huh? Okay. So that was kind of how little of an impact it had on me. And I was yeah. like, well, that tells me that it was it just didn't do it for me. Like I wasn't invested. I didn't really care what happened. Although I was in like while I was listening, I was interested and I was paying attention for sure. And one of my favorite quotes came in the very beginning when he says, Walking around museums too long hurts your feet. <laughs> because... <laughs> he did say that. That that is a true statement and I really wish he would have been there when I was seven walking around museums with my mom because I feel like I could have used the support. <laughs> there there were a lot of good kind of dry yes. wit humor pieces, which is kind of British and kind of Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. I had a couple in here, too. And it was the same. It was about the museum. Um, he said in that very same paragraph, I think, it was, it was almost beyond human capacity for belief to accept how much museum cafeterias will brazenly charge for a slice of cake and a <laughs> yes. cup of tea, which is, you know, that's a very kind of British thing to say. And... Um, I just I loved some of the turns of phrases he used. He was talking about um, this heavier set man who mm-hmm. was uh, trying to compete to be a bodyguard. And he said he looked as if he weighed as much as four fops, each of them carrying a large leather suitcase entirely filled with lard. <laughs> and that, that's a hard that's a hard image to pull out of your head. Yes. And some of the characters in there, they're they're kind of throwaway characters. They yeah. do a little thing and then they don't do more. Right. But they would say these little tiny pieces that really stuck with me, like the um, the metalsmith that they met at mm-hmm. the the floating market at one point, Hammersmith. He he sees uh, Door and he hasn't seen her for a while. And normally people say, "Well, as I live and breathe." Right. And he said, "As I live and breathe and defecate." <laughs> And I just thought that was so amusing. So there's all those little kind of pieces that, for me, the place setting and the buildup of Richard and the quips, yeah. they were enough to keep it moving forward for me. Right. Where they, they does not appear to do so for you. And I think once I realized that it was based on a uh, screenplay or a TV set, mm. that makes much, much more sense to me. Because you just can't have that much um, description. Mm-hmm. It's more... You're relying on people to observe the mm-hmm. character with their eyes, and yeah. it's a more visual thing. Whereas in reading and writing, you know, it's you have to you have to spell it out. <laughs> well, I think we would be extremely remiss if, in this discussion somewhere, we didn't share that um, Mr. Gaiman Neil, mm-hmm. yes. my dear friend, obviously, um, is a huge fan of libraries. So yes. that might be play a small part in why I appreciate his novels so much is because yes. he loves libraries, and so I love him back. And I have to say, <laughs> I wanted so much to like this book because he <laughs> is a total supporter of libraries and librarians. And so I I went into the book feeling a kinship with him. And then I found, I did a tiny little bit of research, and I found that he, the first book that he wrote was a biography of the pop group Duran Duran. <laughs> and that made me like this book so much better. And my plan was to have to spend most of the podcast um, interspersing Duran Duran songs, but I oh. realized that you wouldn't have known any of the titles because you're too young. Oh, <laughs> you could try, and then there'd be silence, and you could laugh to yourself. That that was my plan, okay. actually. Well, you can keep doing that. Yeah, I haven't done any of it yet, oh. but um, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, it's been a disappointment, really. Okay. Well, <laughs> sorry for you. Well, I, 
I really like this book, and I like him as a person, mm-hmm. and I like what he says about the work that he does. Um, a couple of a couple of my favorite things that I've heard him say are that um, the New York Public Library sells a lot of kind of library tchotchkes. Mm-hmm. They have magnets, and some of them have his quotes on them. Mm-hmm. One of them is, um, a book is a dream that you hold in your hands. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, that's just that's a sweet little thing. Mm-hmm. And then he alternatively says things like, stories may well be lies, but they are good lies that say true things and which can sometimes pay my rent. <laughs> so that's a good one. And um, regarding libraries in specific and children, because mm-hmm. he does write a lot of things that are children and youth-focused, uh, he read a lot as a child. And he visited his local school library, and he's got a strong affluence for that type of services. And he does not appear to take a lot of guff for the attitude that um, children should be told exactly what to read. Mm. He wants them to be able to grow and develop on their own. So I wrote down this quote because I thought it was amusing. Uh, I don't think that there is such a thing as a bad book for children. It's tosh. It's snobbery and foolishness. We need our children to get onto the reading ladder. Anything that they enjoy reading will move them up rung by rung into literacy. Amen. Right. I totally dig that. So does that make you like his book now? Um, No. (laughs) The fact that he wrote a biography of Duran Duran makes me like the book. But but – on the along those same lines, I did read about him that he ended his career in journalism because the British newspapers publish untruths as fact. Yeah. So I feel like he's got a lot of integrity. And so I have a, a huge amount of respect for him. He just isn't my gig. I'm sorry. Okay, let me try one more time. Okay. One more time. Okay, bring it. So he had a couple of phrases in there. Um, he talked about how sometimes you hear white noise, Uh but the better version of that is white knowledge, where you're just standing (laughs) around and people are saying smart things and it just osmosis into your head. I feel like that could happen a lot to me. Okay. Okay. Let's try another one. Uh Um, He liked to say that events were like cowards. They didn't occur singly, but instead they would run in packs and leap at them all at once. It's like a Saturday where five people want you to go to an event at the same time during lunch. That's true. That is a good point. Okay. I'll accept that. (sighs) No, I'm still not winning you over. Mm -mm. How about... There's a library shout out in his book when he's first being forgotten by Mm -hmm. London Above. Mm -hmm. He's running around and he's trying to get people to recognize who he is. And so the first thing he says is, let me pull out my wallet. Here's my library card. I'm a person. (laughs) And then he pulls out his credit cards and pieces to go along with it. Okay. Yeah. I'm not going to do it. I'm sorry. That is okay. A very good try. Yeah. I part of part of what I like about this story is that. It's got some interesting juxtaposition and very just kind of put out there between the storyline as it's going along and some really darker themes. Yeah. There's there's torture. Mm-hmm. There's um, the ordeal where there's some kind of suicide mentions. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's these two really awful bad guys yes. who are just eating the heads off of rats that they pull out of their pockets. It's super gross. Yeah. There's a lot of kind of yucky things in there. And um, there's not a lot of buildup for it. It's just here it is. Right. And that's another piece where he's playing off of London above, London below. That mm-hmm. there's there's the dark side and the light side. There's the up and the down. There's there's all these pieces where he's trying to kind of build you a a, a visual interpretation so that you can see all the layers of it. Right. I like that part of it too. All right. Well, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge you mm. to some hardcore character development next month. Oh. And okay. I'm gonna ask okay. you to read. The Straight Man by Richard Russo. Uh, and I'm just, I'm not going to go into great 
detail about it, but the thing that I love about Richard Russo in all of his fiction, he's a fiction writer, um, American, I believe, um, is that he, he is... He must be American. I know, we need I'm an sorry. American author. We, do, we really do. <laughs> um, is that he is so sympathetic to his characters, even the ones who are total jerks, and you think, oh my gosh, I could. there's nothing redeeming in this person. He always finds something redeeming in them, and it makes me want to be like that in real life. Okay. And I think that's a really kind way to look at the world, and it challenges me to be more kind toward the people that I run into on an everyday basis. So th- I'm going to set it up only with that, but it's The Straight Man by Richard Russo. Challenge accepted. Okay. I will read it. You might not like we'll it. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> That's the whole point of this podcast. Exactly. Som- sometimes we don't always agree. <laughs> let me let me share one more little quote before Please. We, we leave. Um, Neil Gaiman, our friend Neil, yes. loves to write so much that he said that in a perfect world, he'll live long enough to write all the books hmm. that he'll never run out of time. And he'll be able to tell all of his <laughs> stories, which I like. Well, that was pretty fun. I'm sorry you didn't like my book. That's okay. I'm, I appreciate the opportunity to read outside my comfort zone because I never would have picked it up. <laughs> and so it was a good excuse. Even if this book wasn't your cup of tea. Like me. Like it wasn't Christine's. There are millions more where that came from. And don't forget, you can always grab these books and lots more at your local library. So please join us next month for Christine's book, Woohoo! The Straight Man by Richard Russo. Thank you very much, and keep on reading.